The first panel, which I will also moderate, will be on investing in quality jobs to tackle climate change. I have a dream panel that I am very excited to converse with up here and for you to hear from. So I'm gonna welcome to the stage, Stefan Lofman, co-chair of the UN High Level Advisory Board on Effective Multilateralism, president of PEZ and former prime minister of Sweden. And I'll also welcome Jerry Butts, vice chairman of the Eurasia Group, and mostly, yes, clap for them, yes. But better known in my climate circles as the person who spearheaded Canada's clean energy transition. So we are in for a treat, and I'll now go take my Johan hat off and go to put on my Francis hat. Where do so you want to sit it? Was that the best? Yes, we're all friends. Yeah. You can sit wherever you want, friends. You're the, you're the boss. You're the boss. You're the boss. <laughs> I'm the boss. <laughs> We're going to start uh, with Stefan is going to speak for a couple of minutes um, and Jerry, I'll have you do the same kind of introduce your perspective on on and, and on come from from the work that you have done around clean energy transitions, industrial policy and jobs um, and and how progressives can look at this space and this narrative. We can pull on the Marcus thread from this morning on the economics brain um, and then we'll get into some questions. Mm -hmm. Well, this morning we we heard uh, the first session uh, discussion about should we when we talk about family should we start climate or should we start jobs? Uh, well, there's no contradiction between the two. We we know that, but I understand the uh, is a relevant issue to to raise because if how to attract people in the best way. For me, jobs comes very naturally. When I became partner leader. In 2012, I said also that our party needs to underline jobs even more. And also when I became uh, the leader of the, the European Social Democratic Party again, and when we now discuss next year's election campaign, I said we need to start with jobs. It's jobs, jobs, jobs. For many reasons. Sometimes we, uh, on, the, on the left side of politics, we tend to discuss welfare. How do we, what do we want to do with social security and, and health care and all that? which is important, but we have to start with how do we build that wealth? How do we create wealth, uh, the real financial resources that we need for that? Well, that's jobs. So I think for, for us progressives, it comes natural. For, for me, it comes natural to start with jobs. Now, also, I think that building a society is uh, the strongest discipline uh, for us social democrats. And I think people know that. I think people trust us in building society we know we know what that means now there are four things that i want to point out that that are important for the, for this first is new technology we need to trust technology and talk about new technology as something that will both save our climate but also creating new jobs and here we now we, we're entering into new phase now where we can display and show more concrete what it is because climate change and transition has been something scary for many people. We don't know what it is. Jobs will go away. We have to show, no, jobs are created. You know, I have a little piece of metal at home now. It's CO2 zero. So the Swedish steel company, SSAB, they know now how to produce steel without using coal. 
Coal has been used in steel production for thousand years. Now we know how to do it without using coal. So now we can start showing there are the new jobs. This new the steel production there, or the battery factories that are now uh, growing uh, all over. So so that's that's the first thing, new technology, and that is something also where we can point out that we as uh, uh, progressives as social democrats are better at cooperating with enterprises so that society and enterprises cooperate and on developing new technologies because that new technology was developed also with with financial support from the government and that is how we need to do this the other is protecting workers because it is hard enough to 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 go from one job to another so that path and we have to talk about it. It's, it's only a matter of going from one job to another. It's not it being unemployed. It's going from one job to another. And during that uh, journey, you will have financial security and you will be help training or, or whatever you need to get that new job. We, we're doing this together. Uh, the third is, is also industry policy, showing that we we constantly are thinking about and developing methods and developing new jobs because when old jobs go, we need these new jobs and they will, they will be created if we do this together. Uh, trade unions, uh, employers and society, we can do this. Lastly, we need incentives also for, for making it easier for people to do the right thing. I, I believe people want to do the right thing. We introduced uh, a system that when, when, if you buy a CO2 zero car, an electric car, you, you got some, depending on the currency rate, but say six, seven thousand euros, six, seven thousand dollars supported because they are in the beginning a bit more expensive. That helps the individual to do the right thing. So you're, you're taking part in, in this transition. Uh, uh, as an active citizen. Well, I am there. I guess we have a lot to talk about. I am there. That was not only a couple of minutes, but uh, closely. <laughs> it was perfect. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I'll sort of take a, a little bit of a different tact. I, I think um, it's relatively straightforward what needs to be done to mitigate climate change. We have to stop burning fossil fuels. We have to stop um, emitting so much carbon into the atmosphere. And with a little luck, we need to figure out technologies that are going to help us remove from the atmosphere the carbon we've already put there. So I think that uh, we're in the business in this room of trying to build a political program to sustain progress, right? It's how do you make sure once you've had those long-fought battles that we'll get the right policies in place? First of all, how do you win those battles on their own terms? And then how do you make sure that you don't create policies that are susceptible to the inevitable change in government means the complete obliteration or demolishing of the program that you put in place? And for the Canadians in the room, um, I will note that the biggest single problem that uh, Premier Doug Ford has had since he's been in office is his attempt to dismantle the Greenbelt. And I would ask you to think about the measures that were put in place to create a permanent advocacy architecture for the green belt that um, starts with its popularity, of course, with regular people and voters, 
but there was a whole infrastructure that was thought through to build around it to sustain it. And I think there's um, uh, the first point I'd make about what that infrastructure looks like is, of course, it has to start with voters. And sometimes I find in my two stints in active politics, we in the progressive movement like to talk to each other more than we like to talk to voters. So I'll be totally blunt about it. And um, how can I be diplomatic in saying that we have a different way of talking to each other than uh, voters respond to? We use language that they don't understand very well. Uh, and when they don't respond in the way that we think they should respond, we tend to look down our noses at them as if they should be just more intelligent and get where we're coming from. This is not the way to be a build a durable political program, folks. And um, the successes that I've been involved in over the course of my political career on the climate front, be it the coal retirement in Ontario, which, believe it or not, started 20 years ago. It makes me feel old just saying it. Um, the carbon pricing, uh, the National Climate Plan in Canada, which, of course, remains a major target of the conservative movement. Uh, if they could dismantle one thing about the Trudeau era, it would be carbon pricing because their sponsors um, in the oil and gas industry would like to see it done and they need a political uh, front to dismantle it because they can't come out and say it themselves. Um, so I'll leave that with the people who are still active and having these debates, but please, please, please protect the National Climate Plan. And. And I, I have no doubt that we will, but, um, you know, we don't want to be uh, what happened after the Rudd era in Australia, where um, the government in Australia was ahead of its time. Some would say too far ahead of its time politically, and they were replaced by a conservative administration that easily demolished everything they did on climate change. We do not want to see that happen in Canada, because ultimately, and this is the topic of the uh, the panel ultimately what's at stake is the economic well-being of the whole country that increasingly capital flows and this is my core business what i do for a living these days um every day of the week increasingly capital flows are investing in low carbon sources of energy food production soil management waste uh, uh management basically we are going through the most complex and comprehensive transformation in the economy that we've seen since the Industrial Revolution. And on the political right, there are a bunch of people who are deeply invested in trying to convince the public that it's not happening. Believe me, it's happening. And the economic winners at the end of the day will be the countries that get their policy architecture right to facilitate that growth and attract that investment. And the countries 20, 30, 40 years from now who failed to do that will be the economic losers. And that is without a question. So if you want to protect the people that you all got in politics to protect, make the energy transition happen faster where you are, because you will become a magnet for investment and jobs over the long term. And your public will reward you with repeated election victories. Trust me on that. Mm. Here, here. I'm also putting on my uh, cap hat while on this panel uh, to talk a little bit about the U.S. Uh, version of this, which obviously you've all heard is called IRA. Um, it has some consider a misfortunate name, some consider it great. Um, but 
what we have seen in the year since we passed this uh, plan is 170,000 jobs uh, created, and the modeling says we'll get to 1.5 million by 2030. Over $213 billion in new investments, and the majority of those investments are in Republican districts across our country. And this matters. Um, that means about 4,200 investments per capita in our Republican states versus about 2,400 in Democrat states. Um, and we have, we're, we're, we're thrilled about this, we're excited about this, but we have the same challenges that everybody else does in terms of narrative and how you land, how you win this win, how we land it, and how we talk about it in a way that matters. And in the U.S., we are going into a year of election, and a lot of the success of this, we have great numbers, a lot of the success of this is going to come down to whether people are feeling it directly in their pockets, whether they are getting those jobs, whether those are well-paying jobs, whether those are union jobs, whether the consumer uptake of these incentives happens, um, are the people buying the electric vehicles and getting the rebates. That is what is going to determine. So we have some similar challenges in how we frame and how we talk to our voters about this. Um, but we need to do it faster and we need to do it well. Um, I wanted to just quickly ask, uh, is there another frame besides the econ frame that either of you feel works well within the climate conversation for voters, families, and communities. And Stefan, you and I know that you might turn to your coal work um, to talk about this. Yeah, I think we touched upon it. The frame, I think, must be that, yes, workers see that we, we are, I have a place in this society here today, but also in 10, five years, in 10 years, in 50 years. I need to, that, that trust. And that is why our message, I think, uh, uh, the progressive message is much, much stronger. We are doing this together as a society. Uh, employers, enterprises, trade unions, uh, society, politicians, we're doing this together. We're creating a better society with jobs. Long Sorry? Long term. Yeah, yeah, long term. Absolutely. Here and now, yes. Because, I mean, given now what, what we see when it comes to inflation, interest rates and all that, we... Politician leaders need to deal with that here and now, so that people say, "Okay, they are they are dealing with it in the best way to to protect us, but also the long term." Yeah, because I think that is perhaps one of the one of the strongest reasons for populist parties and this right wing is that people aren't really believing in the future anymore. They're afraid of the future, and populists can do this. So, so be, being uh, angry at what happens today, fear the future, and looking back at a history that wasn't really there, but they're talking about something very good that was there. Uh, so people dreaming backwards instead of forward. So we, I think that's a very important frame, uh, not least we're, we're doing this together. And you, you'll, be, you'll be in that future project as well. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, I will answer your question. <laughs> Um, but I feel like we should pause and take a moment and think about this kind of spiritual parent of this entire event, and that's John Podesta, who for obvious reasons is a very busy man and is not with us this year. But I remember having conversations like this one with John 20 years ago when we were replacing coal in Ontario. And um, 
his conviction that the political economy of climate change had to had to that the political economy used to promote climate change had had to itself change and that is exactly what has happened with the ira you just quoted all the relevant statistics francis so i won't go over them but it's important for students of politics and people who want to build campaigns promote the environment to understand just what the democrats accomplished in it's easy, you know, there's a whole cottage industry for running down our own accomplishments in progressive politics. Yeah. But it's really important to understand how it happened. And it was a political program that proved climate action was in the best interests of the American worker and the American economy that will make, in my view, a permanent alteration in the political economy in the United States. And it will be very, very difficult for a Republican administration to undo the IRA. And for that, I think all of the people associated with it deserve our unending gratitude. Uh, if you care about the climate, what happened in the United States over the past year and a half is incredibly important, maybe the most important thing that's happened since we started talking about climate change. So that's the, I, I think you hit on a really important point there. My own view is that uh, the economic dimension is, is paramount, but we don't do enough to connect uh, climate and pollution more generally to local health impacts that when we did the, the coal retirement strategy in Ontario and for the non-Canadians in the room, we started it, we campaigned on it in 2003. Uh, our commitment was to replace 7,500 megawatts of coal with a mix of, uh, renewable nuclear and, um, conservation measures and a little bit of, uh, uh, gas. The, we didn't sell it as a climate plan. We sold it as a health strategy that I remember Dalton McGinty, who was a truly visionary leader on, on the environment, selling the plan in, cause I was, we were traveling around in this little minivan <laughs> all over Ontario together, uh, in the opposition days, which tend to be some of the most productive. And he would, he would say that in every stump speech, I'd defy anybody in this room to go into an elementary school classroom in Ontario and not find a kid with an asthma puffer. And we sold it on that basis. There were, I think, if I could remember the stats correctly, Francis, there were upwards of 60 smog bays a year in uh, Toronto, our by far largest city in Ontario and, and in Canada. And there are now zero other than days when it's polluted by wildfire smoke. Which we thank you for. <laughs> well, we all contributed to those fires. <laughs> it's like a true campfire. We got together as a species and made it. Done it together. We are in solidarity. Exactly. We are definitely in solidarity. And I, I was in New York that day when everybody lost their minds about the color of the sky. It was uh, quite something. But but anyway, my, my point being that um, I have been in the environmental movement. I was president of the World Wildlife Fund here in Canada. I'm on the board of the World Wildlife Fund in uh, the United States. They do incredible, irreplaceable uh, work, but they the environmental movement does not use the language that is required to make environmental solutions politically durable. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. I guess with our last four-ish minutes, um, I want to pivot to something that's worrying a lot of people in the climate space. And that's the, I'm just going to be blunt, the takeover of our multilateral climate space by special interests and fossil fuel industry. 
Um, the presidency of the COP this year is in the hands of the president of the National Fossil Fuel Company for the UAE. Um, and we've seen tremendous amount of money from the fossil fuel industry enter this space. Um, and a lot of us are very furious about this. And we're furious about this because this is the only space, the multilateral space is the only space where every country gets a vote, where they get to tell the rest of the world what they are enduring in terms of devastation and why they need what they need from the developed world. And so I wanted your take on what's happening in the multilateral space and why it is important to protect those spaces, why it is important for countries like the U.S. and Canada and countries in the EU and the European Union to show up strong and defend that space for climate and for our people. Uh, well, I can, I can start on this one. It's really simple. I've been to seven or eight, maybe nine comps over the course of my career in various capacities. And the reason that the enemies of climate action have taken over cops is because they were effective, right? They spent the first 20 years of cops complaining that they were hip they were gatherings of hypocrites who all flew there on their private jets and pretended to care about climate change. Uh, and then Paris happened, which again, there's a cottage industry of running down multilateral institutions these days, but I, I defy anybody in this room to think of anything else we as a species has decided have decided to do together other than the Paris Agreement on climate change this century. And that, I think, should give us all a kind of a uh, bit of optimism. And Francis, I couldn't say it any better than you just did. That space needs to be defended and it is under attack. And I think we're coming out of a pretty naive era where we thought the energy transition was going to be a smooth one and relatively politically uncontested. Uh, and I just think that's incredibly naive that the incumbents in the current energy system are going to fight tooth and nail. They're incredibly well resourced. Thanks to Vladimir Putin, they've got about a trillion dollars in extra cash. Uh, lying around and they're going to use that. They're going to deploy those assets to try and protect what they have. And the sooner progressives kind of wake up to that, I think the better off we're all going to be. Yeah, we, we dealt with that also in the high level advisor board that I co-chaired together with Elder <coughs> Johnson, sorry, excuse me. And uh, we said we, we need a new, we wanted to support the Paris Agreement processes. Let's not create something new. We have that. Uh, and and it can work well if we do things faster and better. But the structure is there and, and countries can make their own contributions. Uh, so so let's do it. But we need, for example, a, a new new pact, people and planet, including phasing out fossil fuel. That's our that's our message. We need phasing out fossil fuels, that's that's for sure. And that we need uh, and other things. We need to elevate, lift the the importance of these issues in the UN structure. Meaning, for example, that UN Environment Program and UN Environment Assembly, uh, we, we think we can strengthen them more together, give them more of a monitoring uh, role, uh, put them closer to the World Bank and the IMF, so that they can influence more uh, all the investments uh, that we need to 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 do. Uh, include more private money, and so on and so forth. So, so there's a lot uh, we just just to make sure that we do take 
care of that system at a, at a global level. We can't leave that to a few actors. Just one last thing. I think it's a shame that um, the richer part of the world promised the developing world in 2009, in 2009, to $100 billion annually to, to make sure that we can support. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. So that's the first task now we should we should we should push and say to the the richer part of the world solve that first then you can start build trust and cooperation with with the developing world. I want to thank you both for your commitment to this issue for everything you've done and because this group we the message we want to get across is for democracy to thrive it has to have a planet to live in and this needs to go hand in hand in everything we do. So Join me in thanking Mike, esteemed man.